The first of these is what Professor Otto calls the experience of the numinous. Those who have not met this term may be introduced to it by the following device. Suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. But if you were told there is a ghost in the next room and believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous, and the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. With the uncanny, one has reached the fringes of the numinous. Now suppose that you were told simply, there is a mighty spirit in the room, and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder, and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitant, and of prostration before it. This feeling may be described as awe, and the object which excites it as the numinous. Now nothing is more certain than that man, from a very early period, began to believe that the universe was haunted by spirits. The numinous experience exists, and that if we start from ourselves, we can trace it a long way back. Going back about a century, we find copious examples in Wordsworth, perhaps the finest being that passage in the first book of the Prelude, where he describes his experience while rowing on the lake in the stolen boat. Going back further, we get a very pure and strong example in Mallory, when Galahad began to tremble right hard when the deadly, equals mortal, flesh began to behold the spiritual things. In pagan literature, we find Ovid's picture of the dark grove on the Aventine, of which you would say at a glance, Numen Inest. The place is haunted, or there is a presence here, and Virgil gives us the palace of Latinus, awful horrendum, with woods and sanctity, religione, of elder days. A Greek fragment attributed, but improbably, to Aeschylus, tells us of earth, sea, and mountain shaking beneath the dread eye of their master. And far further back, Ezekiel tells us of the rings in his theophany, that they were so high that they were dreadful. And Jacob, rising from sleep, says, How dreadful is this place! And it seems therefore probable that numinous awe is as old as humanity itself. But our main concern is not with its dates. The important thing is that somehow or other it has come into existence, and is widespread, and does not disappear from the mind with the growth of knowledge and civilization. Now this awe is not the result of an inference from the visible universe. There is no possibility of arguing from mere danger to the uncanny, still less to the fully numinous. You may say that it seems to you very natural that early man, being surrounded by real dangers and therefore frightened, should invent the uncanny and the numinous. In a sense it is, but let us understand what we mean. You feel it to be natural because, sharing human nature with your remote ancestors, you can imagine yourself reacting to perilous solitudes in the same way, and this reaction is indeed natural in the sense of being in accord with human nature. 
But it is not in the least natural in the sense that the idea of the uncanny or the numinous is already contained in the idea of the dangerous, or that any perception of danger or any dislike of the wounds and death which it may entail could give the slightest conception of ghostly dread or numinous awe to an intelligence which did not already understand them. When man passes from physical fear to dread and awe, he makes a sheer jump and apprehends something which could never be given as danger is by the physical facts and logical deductions from them. Most attempts to explain the numinous presuppose the thing to be explained, as when anthropologists derive it from the fear of the dead without explaining why dead men, assuredly the least dangerous kind of men, should have attracted this peculiar feeling. Against all such attempts, we must insist that dread and awe are in a different dimension from fear. They are in the nature of an interpretation man gives to the universe, or an impression he gets from it. And just as no enumeration of the physical qualities of a beautiful object could ever include its beauty, or give the faintest hint of what we mean by beauty to a creature without aesthetic experience, so no factual description of any human environment could include the uncanny and the numinous, or even hint at them. There seem, in fact, to be only two views we can hold about awe. Either it is a mere twist in the human mind, corresponding to nothing objective and serving no biological function, yet showing no tendency to disappear from that mind at its fullest development in poet, philosopher, or saint, or else it is a direct experience of the really supernatural, to which the name Revelation might properly be given. <laughs>